Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There's a lot going on, of course. Uh, we're finding out that Facebook is, in fact, uh, much worse than than we thought. And I, and I will say that I started off with a pretty low bar for Facebook's uh, deplorability, uh, much worse than we, we thought. We'll talk about that over the next uh, couple of days uh, also. And the former president of the United States has just put out a statement endorsing the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, for re-election. Uh, timing was very in- interesting. Uh, he did this uh, just a few moments after a Senate panel in Brazil recommended that Bolsonaro be criminally charged for so badly botching his pandemic response. But I guess guys like this kind of have to hang together. Uh, we're also finding out the January 6th uh, select committee is is going to be subpoenaing, if they haven't already done it, uh, John Eastman, who, of course, was the author of the uh, the famous, infamous uh, coup memo detailing how the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, uh, could overthrow the presidential election. This would suggest that maybe John Eastman needs to get his story straight uh, in case you've missed the latest developments. Uh, over the weekend, he gave a very detailed uh, interview uh, to uh, to our former colleague, John McCormick, uh, who's now at National Review, in which he tried to suggest that, well, it was crazy. He didn't really mean all the things that were in that memo. Uh, but now there's a new video out uh, yesterday and today suggesting that John Eastman uh, has a different version. He's saying that uh, this was a great idea. And the only reason that Mike Pence didn't take the idea was he was an establishment guy. He was an establishment guy. So at some point, John Eastman is going to have to get his story straight. So our guests today, and we are bringing in the heavy hitters, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, co-chairs of the new Presidential Reform Project, which is proposing a bipartisan blueprint for returning the presidency to its proper constitutional role. And of course, uh, Bob Bauer was White House counsel in the Obama administration. Uh, Jack Goldsmith was assistant attorney general under George W. Bush in the Office of Legal Counsel. And they co-wrote the book after Trump reconstructing the presidency, which was released last year. Gentlemen, uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right. Now, I have to start off with an apology because I think you were probably booked under the impression this was going to be a serious discussion, a serious (laughs) in-depth discussion with serious people. When, in fact... um, I, I just have to play a couple of things to give you a sense of the world that we're in, involved in. And I guess it's, it's sort of the context of how hard it is to have a serious discussion. When we have things like this, in case you missed it, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who doesn't have a lot of things to keep her busy in Congress, she doesn't have any committees or anything, apparently spends pretty much her whole life on Steve Bannon's show and gave us this little, you know, little bit of a history lesson yesterday. January 6th was just a riot at the Capitol. And if you think about what our Declaration of Independence says, it says to overthrow tyrants. You know, we have to purse this out. I, I'm, I'm not clear whether she's saying that she's acknowledging that January 6th was kind of an insurrection. It was a small thing and essentially saying that, yes, we are all into sedition and insurrection. So can the more serious voices on this podcast tell me what Marjorie Taylor Greene's getting at? You want to try this, Bob? No. I have no clue. I couldn't possibly (laughs) discern what she has in mind. I don't follow it. I mean, she clearly uh, has been saying any number of things that I find impenetrable and uh, disturbing. But I, to be perfectly honest with you, of all the sources of information that I solicit, all the views that I 
I'm attentive to, I can't say that she's on the list. No, no. But I, I, I think what they, what's interesting is, is how they, they sort of go back and forth between, yeah, you know, January 6th was nothing. It was an exaggeration or it was Antifa. And now she, it's just a riot. It just, so at least she's acknowledging the riot, but also seems to be pushing the idea that, that insurrection is a completely American kind of thing and perhaps normalizing all that. So, okay. So if Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is not on your list, how about a word from the voice of God? So Eric Metaxas, it, it was at one time, and I'm serious about this, it was at one time a serious voice on the Christian right. I mean, he wrote a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce. Um, I've read some of these books. This was, he was a very serious guy. And he's gone off into the deep edges of the fever swamp. And over the last couple of days, he had a guest on named Amanda Grace, who claims to be a prophet of God. God is telling Amanda Grace stuff. And I figured you would like to hear what God has been telling Amanda Grace because it's it's kind of one of those things where big if true. So this is Eric Metaxas, who if, I, I'm almost sensing that even though he books her and puts her on his show, he's kind of thinking, this is crazy. This is crazy. But, but he lets her go through what God has been telling her. So this here's here's Eric Metaxas and Amanda Grace. It seems to me, in, at other times have out and out said that you do believe Biden's presidency will not last or that Trump will be back. Did you say those things clearly or that's just a sense? Um, from what the Lord is saying, there's going to be a disruption in that presidency. Okay. I think he's going to operate through Trump yeah, and those sense. around Trump. Sure. In a, in, yeah. a, in some amazing ways mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. this is happening. But it that. still sounds... Like there's several implications that Biden is going to be thrown out of office, that there's some huge thing going to happen. You, you don't have any doubt God is speaking to you. You're, you're not riffing. No. You're, I mean, people hear from God in different ways and different people yeah, hear uh, from God in different ways at different times. But this was just a clear word. You're getting every word. Yes. And you type it up. You write it down. You type it up. It's on your blog spot. Nothing weird about this. <laughs> not crazy at all. Okay, so uh, Bob and Jack, I'm I'm sorry. I just I th- this is this is part of the dilemma I think of, of of dealing with a political environment that has completely lost its mind. And so you two gentlemen are trying to restore some norms and some sanity to our politics. Uh, are, are you optimistic that this project will work, Jack? Um. I'm not, I would not say I was enthusiastically <laughs> optimistic that the project will work. Um, I think some pieces of it will work. Let me maybe begin by saying why I think it's necessary. Um, so, you know, this project will not fix our politics. It doesn't aim to fix our politics. It, it aims, which and I don't know how that's going to happen. Yeah. Rather, it aims to fix the consequences of our politics for our institutions and one of the really unfortunate aspects of our politics is that institutions have um, are under attack all over the place. And because they're under attack, including by Trump when he was in office and by many other quarters besides Trump, um, their legitimacy is being called into question like they haven't been in a very, very long time. And so one of the things that one big picture way of looking at our project is how can what can we do now? Mm-hmm. to buck up these institutions when they come under this kind of attack. And you can't, these aren't, these aren't proposals that 
aim to prevent the next Trump from attacking institutions, because you can't do that. If, if the American people elect another Trump, you can't stop that president from doing that. Um, and, and by the way, that's the best way to, to preserve our institutions is to make sure someone like that doesn't win. But you can take steps to try to um, empower these institutions to withstand the attacks and to give the institutions perhaps more legitimacy and strength in the face of them. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. Okay, that, that was an interesting point that you just made, because what you're essentially saying is that we can put up guardrails, we can we can strengthen uh, these norms, we can strengthen the, the the protections against the abuse of, for example, the Justice Department. But ultimately, there is no guaranteed protection against somebody like a Donald Trump. I mean, the we've talked about this before, that a lot of these norms were based on the honor system, with the assumption that you would have an honorable man or woman sitting in the White House. Uh, so even if we strengthen all of these protections and the checks and balances, uh, we're still vulnerable as a as a liberal constitutional democracy. If someone like a Donald Trump gets the power of the presidency, then that's but, that, but, but that's not surprising, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising. But that said, I don't want to underplay what can be done. I mean, there, there are two issues here. Can all the reforms we suggest be passed? That's a t- tough question. But if they are passed, would they help significantly in the face of the next Donald Trump? Our book is explicitly premised on what we can do now to make things better when there's another populist demagogue attacking institutions, and indeed another populist demagogue who's going to be much more effective at attacking the institutions than Trump was. Um, And so the, the aim is to try to make things better, not perfect, not perfect. So you, you two gentlemen wrote a piece for Politico um, earlier in the month arguing that, that while Trump did aggressively flout norms, which we all know, you wrote, though, that it is a misleading lens through which to view many of the important reforms to the presidency in the legislation we're going to talk about, the Protecting Our Democracy Act. So why is it a misleading lens to see this reform bill, which, again, constrains some of the uh, presidential abuses? Why is it misleading to see that through the lens of this is about restraining Donald Trump? I can offer you a a first answer here, which is that it's important that these reforms be accepted and promoted and adopted on a nonpartisan basis. And while there is no question that the Donald Trump experience brought home the urgency of dealing with these problems and the dangers of someone like Trump, or, as Jack mentioned a minute ago, somebody even more effective than Trump, who surrounded himself with more effective agents in carrying out the tasks he wanted to carry out. It is also true, and we point this out in the book, that these problems have been with us for some time, uh, that there has been a concern, uh, and at times it has really broken out into you know, major controversies. One can mention the Nixon administration about presidential overreach. And the important point here is, I think, that Democrats and Republicans, without making it only about Trump, can rally around it. And the Republicans who support it need to understand this door swings both ways. This isn't an attempt to stop Trump from seeking office again or to continually rehash all of, in my judgment, extremely well-founded objections to his presidency. It's institutional reform. Institutional reform that allows us to have a constitutionally uh, accountable but still strong presidency and not run the kinds of risks that could get grow only worse 
uh, if, again, um, a Trump wannabe comes along who's even more effective than Trump was. Well, I, I want to stick with this point. Now, the, you're talking about the, this Protecting Our Democracy Act, which is this very broad package, which is in front of Congress right now. I mean, among a lot of things it does, it would make it harder for presidents to you know, hand out pardons that raise suspicions of corruption, refuse to respond to oversight subpoenas, uh, or uh, spend or secretly freeze funds contrary to congressional appropriations. It would limit the ability to fire inspector generals and uh, take payments from foreigners. But one of the points I think you, you just made, though, is that the reason not to see it strictly through the lens of Trump is that, frankly, the abuses have occurred under the presidencies of both parties. I mean, there will be people who will object to the both sides, but you you cite um, Bill Clinton's pardoning of Mark Rich on the last day in in office. So we have we have had other abuses of of the pardon power. We have had both uh, presidents of both parties issuing these emergency declarations that have lasted four years. So. Talk to me a little bit about that, that, that really, when you talk about an institution, basically acknowledging that, that Donald Trump may have been the most dramatic example, but these, these norms have been violated by presidents of both parties for decades now. Yes, exactly. And it's not just, it's not just the norms that have been violated, it's loopholes and laws that have been exploited. Um, you know, the congressional subpoena power has been, presidents of both parties has stonewalled Congress, and this has been a problem for Congresses when they're facing both kinds of White Houses. Inspectors General have been uh, manipulated under under different kinds of presidencies. Uh, the emergency stuff, as you said, has been abused by um, presidents of both parties. The pardon power example you gave is a good one. And that the important point to add is not only are a lot of these proposals addressed to longer-term problems that, yes, to be sure, Trump uh, raised in salience, but they address longer-term problems that have been neglected since the great 1970s reforms. Another point we made in that op-ed is they've actually received Republican support. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been Republican support in the past for a fast-track congressional subpoena process. There was an inspector general hearing last night, and excuse me, last week in the Senate, where Rob Portman was leading the charge for inspector general reform. And there's there's a lot of Republican support for that, and there has been for a while. It's Senator Mike Lee's emergency powers bill that's front and center. Uh, so it's not just, it, it's a mistake to see all of these reforms as anti-Trump reforms. It's a mistake to see these reforms as Republican versus Democrat. Uh, a lot of these things have long tails and they go back a long time that for, with problems in the presidency. And that have been supported, these reforms, by Republicans in many respects. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that's true of all the reforms, but the ones we've mentioned so far and a few others, that's true for. I, I was actually surprised when I was reading uh, your Politico piece, though, that one of the, the, the proposals in the bill um, would qualify the presidential pardon power by making it a crime to offer a pardon in exchange for a bribe. <laughs> my, my reaction was, what, it's not now? Really? I mean, it w- things were that loose that we didn't really have a very, very clear statutory ban against buying and selling pardons? Well, there's a clear statutory ban against pardons, but there's a principle in the executive branch that has some support in the courts that say that criminal statutes, uh, general criminal statutes that don't specify they apply to the president will be construed not to apply to the president. So there's an open question whether the bribery statute covers uh, a a presidential pardon in exchange for a bribe. And of course, 
especially since you're in an area of, you know, extreme presidential power, the pardon power. So in the book, we propose and explain why, and this is what's on the table in the in Congress, that Congress needs to clarify this to make, to, to just to make it clear and to take away any legal question about it. And also, by the way, once you make it a criminal law, no matter what the, the legal question is, it once it's criminalized, that has second and third order effects inside the executive branch in terms of deterrence. So it would make a difference. Is there a constitutional question, though, about whether Congress has the constitutional power to issue pardons? I, I'm just throwing that out. Yeah, I mean, yes. obviously, it wouldn't be a question unless people were saying that that the the president's power uh, is written into the Constitution and therefore there's very limited ability of Congress to limit that. What is your sense of the survivability of, of something like that? So, we again, we talked about this at great length, and I'll try to be uh, mm-hmm. to simplify it. Um so there, the pardon power in Article 2 is one of the rem- most robust of the presidential powers, and the court yes. has always construed the power very broadly. But you wouldn't be limiting the president's power to issue a pardon. Mm-hmm. You would be criminalizing the pardon after the fact uh, under a separate statute, both the person who's the recipient and the president. And for reasons we explain in the book, we don't think that does run afoul of the precedents right. that, say, that limit the pardon power. You're not limiting the pardon power. Right. Um, and there's, by the way, there's support for this view in the executive branch in executive branch Austin legal counsel opinion. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk legal argument that it's constitutional, but I would say it's probably constitutional. And, um, it, even if it weren't constitutional, and again, I think it is, it would still, you know, it's likely never to be tested in courts and it would send a, it send a powerful effect in the executive branch. These laws when there's a criminal law in the books that limits these things, it doesn't just limit the president. It limits all the people in connection with the president who are involved in issuing pardons, who can be prosecuted for aiding the president in committing a crime. So it has a general deterrence effect throughout the executive branch that would be very useful. Well, let's also talk about uh, the emergency power reform, because I think this, this gets to the, 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 qu- the question of the relationship between Congress and the executive branch. So under the Protecting Our Democracy Act, um, presidents would still be able to issue emergencies, but the emergencies wouldn't go on forever and ever. Uh, they would terminate most or many of these emergency declarations after a short period, unless Congress affirmatively approved the declaration. Now, again, this is one of those cases where uh, presidents of both parties have issued these power declarations that go on for pretty much, you know, go on for for decades. And I guess this would be a a very clear reassertion of congressional priorities. Congress standing up and saying, "Okay, you you still have the power to issue these emergencies, but we're not potted plants here. We need to have a role as well." One would think that that would have strong appeal across party lines if members of Congress had some sort of institutional jealousy, correct? Yes, that's true. And the, 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 the institutional respect for institutional prerogatives. Yes. And so one of the struggles we have in this reform movement is, uh, to borrow a phrase that um, was made famous in a Law Review article many years ago, we have less a separation of powers now than we have a separation of parties. And so the parties think less about institutional equities and prerogatives they think more about what it means either to align themselves with the, the president of their party who happens to be in the White House or to oppose the president of the other party who happens to be in the White House. And that really undermines uh, Congress's focus on the constitutional balance that needs to be struck. 
having said all of that, as Jack pointed out, there are Republicans who are actively concerned about that, and there are Democrats uh, who are actively concerned about that. And again, and we mentioned this in the book, there's a variant of the golden rule to which we're sort of appealing, which is in thinking about these reforms, ask yourself uh, whether or not the reform under discussion is one that you think cuts both ways. Uh, would you be just as willing to live with it if the president was your president, the president affiliated with your party, as if it were the president affiliated with the other? And I think the example you just gave of emergency powers, and I think the same thing is true of pardon powers. We could also talk about the Electoral Count Act and the role mm-hmm. of the vice president, speaking of John Eastman. Those doors swing both ways. And so on the, under any golden rule analysis, both Democrats and Republicans should be prepared to support them. Well, also, um, this would apply to congressional subpoenas also, right? I mean, this is another one of those areas where, as you point out, I mean, Congress has a real institutional interest in correcting the imbalance in the relationship. But again, um, we're, we're seeing the way this is breaking down along partisan lines. I believe uh, all but two Republicans, for example, voted against a, a referral uh, to the Justice Department uh, after Steve Bannon thumbed his nose at a at a, at a subpoena. But uh, we did see under the Trump uh, administration a complete policy of stonewalling congressional subpoenas, which would essentially render or at least runs the risk of rendering congressional oversight completely moot. I mean, this would be one where I would think the principle you just laid out would be very, very strong. Um, Republicans are going to want to have a robust subpoena power, right, if if they take control of of Congress. And uh, so I, I, I guess, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I'm, it, it, it just puzzles me that we've gotten this far. That they that they haven't been more jealous in guarding their prerogatives. You would think that this would be something that Congress would have really held on to tightly and not allowed to slip away. But again, so let's talk about the, the congressional subpoenas. Um, this goes to the heart of your argument, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, clearly, uh, each side suspects the other of bad faith in the investigative and oversight mm-hmm. process. So their view of the subpoena process depends on, uh, at any given time, who the subpoena happens to be directed against, who the investigation uh, happens to be focused on. Uh, It's important uh, to make sure that whatever provisions confer authority on Congress to seek enforcement of the subpoena is carefully drawn so that uh, it does not wind up introducing an imbalance of its own. But fundamentally, I could not agree with you more. I think Congress, from an institutional perspective, from an institutional perspective, not from a who happens to be in charge of the White House perspective, uh, ought to be uh, crafting a provision that permits them to seek judicial relief uh, where uh, there is what you call you know, stonewalling, where Congress is being denied what it is entitled to and requires to perform its constitutional responsibilities. So talk to me about the Electoral Count Act. Uh, you, you you raised that. And of course, uh, John Eastman is back in the news today. Uh, this seems like a, another classic example of it. It's, you know, obviously Republicans would have, or certain Republicans would have, you know, one view when Vice President uh, Pence is in the chair and would have a completely different uh, reaction if it was Kamala Harris who's in the chair doing the Electoral Count Act. Uh, that that's That's a... We've talked about that before on this podcast. We've written about it at the Bulwark. Uh, this is a, a piece of legislation desperately in need of updating and revision. Would you agree? Absolutely agree. Couldn't agree more. I, I, it's an astonishing uh, that it is uh, proceeding so slowly. 
I noted an article just the other day in a significant publication where Democrats were some Democrats who were quoted or on background, however, however it was presented, were musing about the possibility that you know, maybe there were steps Kamala Harris would have to take if the Republicans misbehaved in the election, if the state legislatures abused their authority and attempted to override the state certified results in their states and presented other electors to the Congress for certification that maybe, in fact, Democrats ought to take the position that the vice president has a constitutional mm-hmm. authority to block that sort of thing. Now, without getting into all sorts of scenarios, complicated scenarios like the ones that appeared in the article, I could not agree with you more that, and I think it's hard for me to imagine anybody could reasonably disagree, that just looking at what it was that Donald Trump wanted Mike Pence to do and what it was that Jack Eastman laid out as legal theory for Mike Pence doing it, I can't imagine any reasonable person schooled in the law or even exercising fundamental common sense could agree that the Constitution empowers the vice president of the United States sitting as president of the Senate to decide the outcome of an election by turning away the state certified results because there's partisan pressure or the pressure, frankly, in this case, from his boss to do so. No one buys that. It's, it's in, it, but it having happened, there having been some who argued for it. Donald Trump having pressed very hard for it, it seems to me that uh, this statute enacted in 1887 is in desperate need of reform to clarify the obvious and also to address other problems that that statute does not uh, clearly resolve. Can I just add something to that? There's there's a difference, I think, with the Electoral Count Act reform. And it's it's a subtle but important difference. I mean, as you say, the bulwark and lots of other conservative publications have come out in favor of it. I don't think there's been, unlike, for example, in the inspector general reform or subpoena reform or emergency powers reform, I don't believe there's been a lot of Republican support for this yeah. on Capitol Hill. And the reason is, and this is unfortunate piece of reality, how these things get framed and whether they can be framed as something beyond Trump and a larger institutional problem beyond Trump or whether it's just an anti-Trump thing matters. And this is one that... You know, as Bob said, and as you said, it's one that desperately needs fixing from an institutional perspective without regard to politics. But it's one that I I fear is going to become ensnared um, in being viewed as anti-Trump, which makes it harder for a lot of Republicans to support it. So I just think that one is going to be a a heavier lift. I hope I'm wrong about that. But that is that is an important dynamic about what is getting what is making its way through and what isn't making its way through. Yeah, I mean, their um, their attention will obviously be um, rather dramatically focused if, if you have a Democratic uh, vice president who does what John Eastman suggested a Republican vice president will do. This is, I, I, I think, one of the more in some ways discouraging things that we watched is that is how changeable these principles are depending on whose ox is being gored that you have people who will take one position when they're in power and then reverse it without having the consideration that you were mentioning before about, okay, you need to come up with rules and principles that will survive a change in in government. That, that yeah. you, you, you will want to have a set of rules that will govern the other guy when they are in charge as well as you. But we're kind of living in an age right now where people switch 
switch sides almost on a dime on an issue like this. And, you know, there's a cynical part of me that says there actually are no norms or principles, just simply, you know, which cudgel is being held by which party? Do you, I, I know that's very, that's very cynical, but, but that's kind of the process that we're, we're seeing here, right? That that you you have uh, one political party which really is deeply concerned about the imperial presidency until literally the moment their party assumes the presidency, and that's the problem of reining it in. Correct? Yes, absolutely. I I think look, I, I in my experience, I setting aside um, uh, the article I mentioned, which as I said presented Kamala Harris's responsibilities. Uh, in that hypothetical, in a much more complicated set of circumstances than the one facing Mike Pence. Setting that aside, I don't know of any Democrat I've spoken to recently, and frankly, even some Republicans I've spoken to recently, but certainly Democrats, who don't think we should go ahead and amend the Electoral Count Act. Uh, they recognize the statute is poorly written, confusing, antiquated, subject to abuse and exploitation, and they support it. But we still see no active movement in that direction. And that's really a problem. I mean, this needs to get addressed. And so I, 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 I agree with you on that. So it's not true of every issue. I mean, yeah. emergency powers reform, I, I believe Senator Lee originally introduced his emergency power bill during the Trump administration. Congressional subpoenas, I think, I think Daryl Issa introduced his bill on that during the Trump administration. There are some issues on which Congress still maintains a more or less institutional interest vis-a-vis the executive as opposed to a what's best for my party interest. And obviously those are the areas where reform is, is more likely. But it is definitely true that Congress's institutional interests and its standing up for its institutional interests has withered. And that is well, a serious problem. Well, so let's talk about the actual political prospects for this. Um, the, the Protecting Our Democracy Act, um, which if it passes the House, would pass you know a Democratic House with a Democratic president. So that cuts against the argument I was making here. Um, what are the prospects of this? Because what we've seen, of course, is that things can get through the House and then they get cut up in the Senate. And uh, you, you, you have... I, I, you, you sort of agree with, I think, the, the New York Times reporting that says that if this got through the House, that it would be cut up into pieces in the Senate, wouldn't be passed as one big bill. So what are the prospects, do you think? I mean, could something like this pass through a Senate with 60 votes? I, I think that, you know, again, our Politico piece was basically about identifying the things where we yeah. thought there was the best chance. And yeah. uh, Inspector General reform is already very far along in the Senate. And so there's a decent chance that that can be sliced off and they can reach some kind of an agreement and put it somewhere. Uh, The emergency powers reform, again, that appears to have pretty significant bipartisan support. I just want to say the emergency powers bill is great, but it has a large loophole for IEPA, the Emergency Powers Economics Act. They they cut that out of the reform and that, that makes it a less significant reform than it would have been, but it's still an important reform and there's bipartisan support for that. So that's a piece that, in theory, can be sliced off and make its way into a bill. Um, I think this, the next most likely one is congressional subpoenas. That's a tricky one um, because Democrats are thinking ahead to after the midterm elections and what that may look like for them. <laughs> yeah. But that's one that I think has the potential for bipartisan support. You know, a lot of the others in the Protecting Our Democracy Act are are harder. The pardon 
issue should be one that has bipartisan support, yeah. but I'm not sure that, that it will in the Senate. Boy, that one would seem to be easy. So uh, there's another, I think I heard you on the Lawfare uh, podcast talking about this, that it's part of your agenda is, of course, you know, legislative, but also you've uh, sent letters to Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, urging him to protect uh, the Justice Department from politicization. And there are things the Justice Department itself can do. Could you talk to me about that, what they can do short of legislation? Certainly. I mean, in our book, we note uh, that internal regulation, self-regulation by the executive branch is a critical component of reforms. We have an opportunity now with a president who is very favorable to those kinds of reforms. We have an opportunity to to do that, uh, to see those reforms occur, and we hope that they will. Certainly, the politicization of the Department of Justice or the appearance of it presented a huge problem in recent years. Of course, that was a significant issue in the Watergate episode as well. And once again, both parties ought to be rallying around the notion that you don't want the Department of Justice to play that role, to become a political weapon in any administration in our constitutional democracy. And there are steps that can be taken to reinvigorate norms through internal regulation. And those steps matter. And they matter because First of all, an administration in which those rules are adopted, it constrains behavior, but it also puts the succeeding administrations under pressure to either adopt those same rules, continue them, or to explain why they're departing from them. And so you want to sort of plant in favorable soil, you want to plant this flag and you know hope that it, that it endures because you're reasserting the norm. So there, there are a number of things that we lay out in the book and that we identify by reference in the letter to the attorney general that the department could do that we think could really make a significant difference uh, in making sure that people do not view the Department of Justice as, in effect, being run for political purposes or to assist in supporting the president's partisan political agenda. And also, there, there are memos that take what you describe as an extreme indefensible view of presidential war powers. That can be something that the Department of Justice can do? Easily. I mean, all that takes is the Office of Legal Counsel's opinions on presidential war powers are very robust, but there are some that are extreme and clearly wrong growing out of the early Bush administration. And we've written a letter there as well, urging those opinions to be withdrawn. And again, that's a big step, but it's not a hard step once someone decides it's the right step to take. Basically, the Office of Legal Counsel's call in conjunction with the Attorney General. The important thing about reforms within the Justice Department is that it's just a lot easier to do. You basically have to get the Attorney General behind it. And uh, so in theory, these reforms are much easier to achieve. And, and they, in the aggregate, can be very, uh, you know, very consequential. So what about, speaking of, of memos, during the Mueller investigation, of course, a lot of attention on the the memo, the guidance that uh, that said that a sitting president could not be indicted. Uh, do you have a position on that? So Bob yes. and I have somewhat different positions. I remember this conversation. Yes. Yeah, I'll let him go first. Yes. Okay. That's that's the, the one instance in which um, Jack and I did not have uh, a complete agreement. In some respects, the differences may not be all that large, but they're large enough, I suppose, to merit comment. Very simply, we have a um, law, executive branch law, not surprisingly generated in two administrations in which the president found himself potentially facing criminal prosecution that holds that while in office, the president uh, cannot be prosecuted, uh, or rather uh, the, the president could be investigated, but the president could not be prosecuted. 
And of course, presidents are investigated, but the president cannot be the subject of an indictment and cannot be tried while in office. Then we have a norm that seems to apply after the president leaves office that generally holds that except in extraordinary circumstances, yeah. and it's no agreement on what those extraordinary circumstances are, it's very divisive for one administration to proceed with the prosecution of an ex-president. And so the concern that I express is that we are now really locked out of holding the president accountable in meaningful yes. ways. It, Jack makes the point, he'll speak for himself, there are other mechanisms of accountability to be sure, but we do treasure the axiom that the president is not above the law. I happen to think the executive branch opinions that were issued that uh, have been relied upon uh, since for that proposition are not persuasive. Uh, they're not persuasive in my judgment at all. I understand the reason behind them. I don't think the reasoning is valid. And I think that uh, we need to tread very carefully to avoid being in a direction where for all practical purposes, while in office, the president can't be prosecuted. And after the president leaves, the president can't be prosecuted, whether by law in the first instance or norm in the second. I think that's a very dangerous state of affairs. All right. Jack Goldsmith, you disagree? Yeah, I, I, I might disagree in emphasis. Um, so I'm very skeptical. I'll start with prosecuting Trump. I'm very skeptical that it's a good idea to use the, the criminal investigation process to examine a president, the, the prior presidency. I think, first of all, I don't think that there's actually hard evidence yet that Trump committed a crime. We can talk about that if you like. He certainly did a lot of things around the edges of crimes and lots of terrible things. Um, but the very act of investigating a prior president for criminal acts in office threatens to, um, you know, make that the new norm in Washington. It's already tending in that direction. I think that's a bad thing. And I think that the costs of doing that outweigh the benefits in terms of the distraction of the country, the elevation of Trump, the unlikelihood of actual conviction and the like. So I'm not uh, I'm not a fan of, of, of prosecuting Trump based on what we know right now. I'm, I'm very supportive of any legitimate prosecutions for acts that Trump committed before he entered office. And there are several investigations going on on that front. And of course, for anything he does after office. But I think it's it's a dangerous precedent to set. And again, this is a matter of prosecutorial discretion as the attorney general's call, because I don't think there's a bar on prosecuting a president for acts committed in office but once he's left office, which brings us to the memo that the Office of Legal Counsel yeah. has written twice saying that a president can't be prosecuted while in office. And I think more of those memos than Bob does. But I have to admit, I mean, the Constitution does not speak clearly to the question. It just doesn't speak clearly to the question. And both sides of the argument are drawing inferences, and both sides of the argument are uh, looking and thinking about adverse consequences. And, and so a lot of one's judgment depends on, uh, you know, again, non-determinate interpretations of the Constitution. So all of these interpretations are less than clear and what you what what, what the consequences will be. I just think it's you know, if you just remember the independent, the, the problems we have with the independent counsel statute in uh, during the Clinton era and the like, I think it's in general a bad idea for the president. That was just for the investigation, obviously. But I think it's in general would be terrible for the country for the president to be being prosecuted while he's in office. And I think it's also constitutionally difficult since the president has Article Two authority controlling prosecutions. But again, I just want to emphasize, I don't think the answer is clear-cut one way or the other. Uh, and I agree with Bob that it's not a happy consequence if 
the president can't be prosecuted while in office and then shouldn't be prosecuted while out of office. Um, and I don't think there's an absolute bar on, on prosecuting a president while out of office. But I think basically for the stuff we've learned about Trump so far, I don't think there's a basis for it. You know, it's been dropped into the memory hole now, but um, I recall that Mitch McConnell, when he gave his speech uh, after after January 6th, very specifically said that the president, in fact, could be prosecuted. He thought that the president could be uh, prosecuted for things that he had done. So at least for five minutes there, Mitch McConnell uh, seemed <laughs> to acknowledge the fact that that a president could face legal consequences after leaving office. And of course, uh, that was then and this is now. And no, but that, I don't that's not likely to happen. Yeah, but just, just to be clear, I agree with yeah. that. I'm not yeah. I'm not denying that the president can be. The question is should they? whether the president should be, whether that's good for the nation. And just based on the facts that I know right now. And again, I don't have complete information. I don't think that that would be a prudent exercise of prosecutorial discretion, but there's no doubt. But that could change. I mean, that could change depending on what they, for example, the January 6th committee were to uncover. If they were to uncover some sort of a smoking gun, you would change your your opinion. If it was a smoking gun, for me, the bar would be very high. Mm -hmm. Just uh, and but if there was a smoking gun that implicated a clear criminal prohibition that the president had violated, and that's a very high bar. Then I would then I then my views would change. Bob Bauer, absolutely. I I don't know um, enough to know what kind of case testing Jack's you know uh, prudential standard here. What kind of case might be brought uh, against Donald Trump? Just as a general principle, however, if in fact uh, a president uh, has committed a serious violation of the criminal laws, I think the president should be accountable for it. Period. Uh, that's my view. I, I recognize some of the complications, certainly of proceeding while the president is in office. Jack has identified those for sure. There's no disagreement when the president leaves office uh, that uh, the president is liable for prosecution. And I probably, again, depending on what is meant by saying set the bar high, uh, I probably would not set the bar as high as Jack would. And I'm not but I, but I also think this conversation is one again that is really important to conduct, without the focus being exclusively on Donald Trump. Yeah, and of course, you know, this is this is in the, in the context of the fact that uh, the the founders uh, did have a provision for holding the president accountable, uh, the, the whole process of impeachment and the and the trial. But one of the things we've learned is that impeachment was not is not necessarily the robust check that uh, perhaps we had imagined. In many ways, what we found in the Trump years is that. Impeachment has kind of become a dead letter for holding the president uh, accountable. So I, uh, but your 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 thoughts on that? I mean, that was that's that was the Constitution's way of really restraining the illegal conduct of the of the president, right? And um, what we're finding out is that in the modern political era, it just it's kind of a squib. The impeachment process, of course, isn't directed only at illegal conduct. Right, uh, right, uh, right. Uh, right. Any right. any conduct that that uh, the Congress legitimately concludes consistent with constitutional precedent, you know, historical example, and the like, uh, that is it simply uh, renders the president unfit to continue in office is impeachable. But you're right. Here we're back again to separation of powers, uh, separation of parties rather than powers. Uh, the impeachment process, and this was certainly true uh, during the Clinton impeachments, has just gotten uh, swept up in uh, the animus of parties toward each other. And so uh, gradually, uh, each party accuses the other of bad faith in instituting impeachment proceedings. And there is huge pressure from the party constituencies not to let up in the defense of the president. 
and it has been there's no question significant cost uh, to the impeachment process as a constitutional mechanism for presidential accountability. I'll just add one thing really quickly. Sure. The rules of the Senate on the impeachment are in desperate need of revision too. I mean, there are all sorts of unanswered questions about uh, how the Senate proceeds, how the House and Senate proceed in conducting impeachment inquiries and, and trials. Uh, and there are uh, also clear-cut inadequacies in those rules. But again, I, I wouldn't put any money on the Senate or the House, and the Senate in particular, insofar as trials are concerned, paying any attention to revision of those rules. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith are the co-chairs of the new Presidential Reform Project, which is proposing this bipartisan blueprint for returning the presidency to its proper constitutional role. Um, They are the authors of After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency, which was released last year. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.